You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. In light of the COVID-19 crisis, we have a recorded discussion on best practices related to infection control, protecting our patients, protecting ourselves. So let's take a listen to Dr. Molinari and others answering questions from our audience. Thank you. There are two types of masks. At this point, the N95 mask is the mask that's routinely recommended. Dentistry uh, did not learn and has not routinely used nor stocked N95 masks. First of all, what's the difference? The masks that you've been using, your level one, level two, level three masks, they're cleared by the FDA. And these masks are intended uh, as fluid-resistant barriers. They provide you with protection against large spatter and droplets, splashes, etc. They also uh, protect the patient from your respiratory uh, emissions. Uh, so they, they, they are very, very useful, and they've been, they've been a major component of our standard precautions. N95 respirators, on the other hand, are a much higher level, uh, provide a much higher level of respiratory protection. These are evaluated, tested, and approved by NIOSH, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. And these requirements are much tighter and much higher than what you see for looser-fitting surgical masks. Not only do the N95 masks uh, reduce your exposure to the large uh, aerosols, of course, but they also protect you against uh, uh, much smaller uh, particulate material, small droplets, uh, and, that, and that would include a number of organisms that, that would fit into that category. These things are much more regulated, as I mentioned. They are much more tight-fitting. In fact, uh, as they're evaluated uh, before approval, uh, users for these things have traditionally had to be fit-tested, uh, which means that they had to sh- have a specific test as a hood that's placed over the person's head in the hospital, and then a mist is sprayed into this hood. And if they're wearing the mask, they should not be able to spread uh, to smell that that the odor from that mist. That's how tight fitting these things are. With a surgical mask, you don't have that. You can have loose uh, fitting around the sides where it doesn't conform to the face. So that is a major difference here. The surgical masks do not provide you with a reliable level of protection from inhaling small airborne particles. And so this is not considered respiratory protection as we see uh, with what we're dealing with right now. You mentioned the the fit testing um, that happens uh, in other settings. And uh, one tip for the uh, dental setting uh, has been to place your fingers once it's been properly placed over your uh, face to use your fingers at the 12 o'clock, the six position and then uh, exhale heavily and see if you can feel air coming out. Then to repeat it at the 3 o'clock and the 9 o'clock position. And then also at the 11 o'clock and the 5 o'clock and the 1 o'clock and the 7 o'clock. And each time you've got those pairs of o'clocks, exhale heavily and see if you can feel air coming out. And that's a a stopgap test, I suppose, that uh, you can see if there's any air coming out from the respirator, and that helps check for the FIT2. The last thing I want to mention, and then I'll turn it back over to Sabia and Fiona, is one of the things that people have not necessarily realized, I hope they're realizing it more now, is with N95 respirators, because they are required to work with a tight fit, 
people who are uh, who have beards, people who have an extensive stubble, and obviously men here, uh, they won't get the tight fit. Now in today's crisis world in, in hospitals and what we're seeing hospital uh, healthcare workers and first responders go through, uh, that is not a major consideration. But for routine use, these things are to be tight-fitting, and the face has to have a tight seal with the mask. And so something that can interrupt that is going to compromise the integrity of the mask. Well, the logical conclusion is that everybody should be beardless, I guess, would be the, the thing to add. Um, the other thing is that how you place it on. Um, um, I think uh, sometimes we see errors in uh, placement of PPE. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, this is a tricky one to place. And it's really important that the lower elastic is placed under the crown at the back of the head and then fit it over the chin and then place the other elastic on the upper part of the back of the head to help achieve that tight fit. Um, I did see somebody recently, uh, it was a video clip, it wasn't dental, but it was a video clip of somebody uh, saying they were desperately short of N95s, which of course is a problem at the moment. Um, However, the lower um, elastic, instead of being under the back of the crown of the head, was actually dangling under the chin. Um, So if it's not fitted properly, then obviously we're not going to get a good fit. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. And the other question, you know, we're seeing a lot about, you know, hospitals reusing these N95 masks with extended use and reuse because there's such a shortage. Is that okay? Does that apply to dentistry as well? Well, normally, of course, they're single-use disposable. um, But under the current situation with uh, a really a drastic shortage in many places with N95s, uh, it is acceptable currently. Uh, to reuse an N95 respirator. There are some caveats. Um, firstly, it cannot be soiled. Uh, so I'll talk about how we can avoid that uh, as best as is possible. Uh, in hospital settings, their uh, reuse includes extended use and reuse. So the extended use would be um, if the uh, clinician were to use the same respirator um, for, success, for successive patients one after the other. Um, Given the current uh, restrictions on dental practice, uh, that's unlikely to be happening. It's more likely to be one patient coming in for an emergency. So really we're looking at reuse. And provided the the N95 is not soiled, it can be reused a number of times. Um, Only if it's not soiled. Now, how do you prevent soil? Uh, Well, one suggestion that has been made is to use a mask over the N95, and that way, if uh, there is any soil, it's liable to be on the mask and not to get through to the N95. Um, Another option is to use a face shield, and uh, with that, uh, I'm going to leave the other aspects of face shield because I I believe uh, Sabia has a question on that. Yeah, no, so this question would be for Dr. Molinari. Is the combination of a mask and face shield better for us to help reduce the transmission if we can't get our hands on an N95? Yes. The face shield is going to, uh, you have these face shields and they actually cover part of the mask, so you're going to reduce the uh, exposure of the mask uh, to aerosol, splash, and spatter. And, and a face shield, in, in my opinion, uh, is functional and, and, will, and, and will provide some benefit. 
this is not something that has been part of the standard precautions up until now. But down the road, as these things are going to be updated, uh, my opinion is, is you're going to see more of a recommendation for face shields being included because of the uh, large amount of material that can be uh, airborne during a dental procedure. What do you think, uh, Fiona? I, I totally agree. Um, the other aspect, of course, was the, the soiling of the mask that I mentioned. And some offices, of course, are already using them for laser plumes and other things. Um, I agree. I think we're going to see more use of face shields. Right. Yes. Yeah, um, get back to some of these. Oh, sorry. Do you have anything to add to that, Fiona? No. Okay. Oh, Sabia, can I add something to that? Sure. Um, very quickly. I think most of the face shields, help me out on this, Fiona, but I think most of them are single-use disposable, but don't they have some that are reusable face shields that can be cleaned and disinfected between uses? Yes, there are, there are a number of reusable face shields, and uh, you would simply clean and disinfect the same as you would any other surface. Um, okay, I just want to bring that in to make sure that uh, people understood that. Yeah, the external surface you can clean. The other thing I uh, forgot to mention that I wanted to mention uh, with respect to reuse is there are now some technologies that have been investigated uh, to decontaminate, obviously not soiled N95s, but unsoiled N95s. Uh, there's a company called uh, Battelle, and uh, they are using large chambers that look like rooms uh, with vaporized hydrogen peroxide and they now have approval to decontaminate masks. Um, you, to my knowledge, you, they're not involved in dental, but it's an example of a technology that's coming. Um, there are others. There are low-temperature technologies that are being looked at, including smaller uh, machines that could be used countertop. Uh, one question that's arisen is, can, can we steam sterilize them? No, that will uh, degrade them. Uh, so that's not an option. You can't wash them. That destroys their barrier properties. And you can't use alcohol or bleach on them either. Um, so there are limited options at the moment. But the good news is there are technologies that have been developed and are being developed and uh, should be out shortly. There, there has been an awful lot of innovative technologies that have been out before, but which are now being much more uh, readily investigated. One yep. of the things that I, I would like to mention, uh, and, and thanks Fiona for bringing it up because it just allows me to piggyback on it, is I keep, uh, I occasionally get a question, well, can I spray a mask uh, mm -hmm. to decontaminate it? You do not want to spray a mask with any surface disinfectant that you may be using because you don't want to wet the mask more because that is going to compromise the integrity of, of, of any mask, okay? Oh, that's wonderful. And so what I'm getting from this is if you have a well-fitted N95 mask that is not soiled, you can reuse it. And probably the best way to do that would be, and if you don't have that, the best way thing to do is maybe use a level three mask with a face shield for now if we have to go see emergencies. Yes, you, yes. you really need an N95 for aerosol generating though. Um, the other thing I forgot to mention is the reuse is intended as reuse by the same clinician, not to share it for reuse. Right, right. right. Hospitals are doing this routinely, as you know. You see on the news, you hear the reports. Unfortunately, there uh, evidence that has come out, oh, it's been out for a while now, that uh, N95 masks uh, can be reused uh, for up, up to six hours or possibly even longer, uh, again, by the same person. But no one is 
really sure with the large extent of aerosols that may be generated uh, in a dental practice with certain procedures, just how long that mask would hold up. But you're seeing these masks being used in hospitals for extended periods of time because it's, it's, it's an emergency situation. So it's getting a variance on the single use and disposable uh, criteria that we typically apply to these masks. Here's a question too that I think is a great question coming from one of our listeners here. What classifies a soiled mask? Um, it's really similar to seeing a soil on any surface. Do you see any visible soil on the mask? You know, do, going through all this, it's kind of interesting. We're going back, we're all reading our CDC guidelines. We're staying up to date with things that we should already be doing. But it's interesting that it's been, you know, last time we've got any guidelines really from the, P, you know, on PPE were, was in 2003, which requires us to wear gloves, eyewear with sh- side shield protection, you know, required to wear masks and long sleeve uh, cuff lab coats. Do you think that they will be updating these guidelines soon to include, you know, disposable surgical caps or disposable gowns, disposable shoe covers? Well, these are definitely going to be, I'm sorry for you, and I'll just jump in on this and then come on in also, please, if that's okay. They're definitely going to be updated. Right now, part of the thing that is being done is we don't have information on uh, the numbers of dental professionals that are, that are treating uh, COVID patients that may or may not realize in hospital settings and in hospital clinics, for example, uh, where they are exposed to these types of patients. We, we don't know the type of exposure and the type of infections that are being uh, passed to dental professionals. That information will be collected, will be analyzed. That will certainly be used to look at what the occupational risks are compared to the tragic risks that we see uh, our first-line healthcare professionals being exposed to in the hospitals. That will all go into the recommendations. Um, and, and that's important because you need to have that kind of data. You mentioned the 2003 guidelines, but remember also in 2016, the CDC put up an addendum, a supplement, which reinforced uh, the precautions and guidelines that we saw in 2003. And there re- really wasn't anything that I remember uh, extra about PPE. There were things about slow-speed handpiece sterilization, things about water lines, uh, ways to uh, look at practicing good infection control with checklists, etc. But they have been evaluating it, and that information is still being developed now as, as we are in this crisis phase. But those pieces of data will have to be used to make a, a science evidence-based set of recommendations for dentistry soon, whenever that happens. What do you and think, it, Fiona? Well, if, if I can piggyback on that by um, just mentioning that if you look at surgical procedures, there already is the option, um, including in dentistry, to use surgical caps, disposable gowns. Um, and disposable shoe covers as appropriate. It's really down to the individual determining the risk level and determining if they need any or all of that additional uh, PPE. And in fact, if you look at the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentations, ST79, which came out in 2017, that does address additional PPE that may be required in this case, uh, specific to instrument reprocessing. But these are always options. One of the biggest questions right now, even for myself, 
other clinicians. We are mandated by our states, and we're all a little different, but most of us are not working to do non-essential work right now, and we're limited to doing going in for emergencies. But there's a shortage of masks and 95s. What can we do to protect ourselves so that we can you know, triage these patients so that they don't end up at the hospital and take up, you know, more room when, when they're worried about treating COVID patients? Well, I, th- I think there's a couple of things. The first thing is, is as you say, it has to be an emergency patient, non-elective. Um, is Before the patient is going to be coming in, screen them. Um, and, and in fact, the CDC came in, came out with additional information and guidance uh, for the dental setting yesterday, in fact. Mm-hmm. So it was to screen on the phone first, does the patient have any symptoms um, if, and have they had any symptoms? If they had symptoms, has it been at least 72 hours uh, since they recovered from a fever? If they had a fever, we know some people are symptomless or um, have minimal symptoms. And the other aspect is, has it been at least seven days since they had symptoms? So in other words, have they uh, completed the isolation period at home um, prior to when they would be coming into the office. So that's the, the first part. And then the other part is if based on the screening or based on um, when they arrive in the office, when you didn't achieve the knowledge during the screening, if, you, if it's a suspected or a confirmed COVID-19 patient, so a patient that's been infected, um, to refer them to an appropriate facility. Um, so... The N95 conservation is really, really important, but the other is making sure that people are being treated where they need to be treated based on the screening. So you're telling me if, it, if you pre-screen them, it sounds like they have COVID-19, to send them to the emergency room, send them to the hospital. If you screen yep, them... Send, them, send them to a facility that's uh, equipped to, to deal with them there. So they, they don't define the appropriate facility in the particular document. Um, but it would be a facility with um, extra precautions. But it sure sounds like a hospital or, it does. Yes. or a dental facility or a dental clinic in a hospital where they are already having all these precautions. Right, exactly. It would need to be, uh, it, it really is a hospital basically or uh, a setting that has been equipped for it uh, to deal with the requirements of treating somebody uh, with COVID-19 or presumed COVID-19. And we're also getting a lot of questions too. I mean, do you have any insight as to when we're going to have N95s be available to us in the U.S.? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that properly, Sabia. I know we have no ball. That pretty, you know, just when do you? When do you? There was a question here by one of our doctors too that's asking right now. You know, when should we be able to expect the supply chain to update so that we have N95s since they're not available? Um, I'll let John piggyback on me. I have, I, I have no idea. Um, I'm not involved in the um, supply chain, so I don't feel equipped to answer that question. I don't know if John has more information than I do. I don't know who's equipped to answer that question right now. Um, I think okay. companies are uh, manufacturing many more. It's when are they going to have enough to be able to get out to the places that really need them. Uh, I don't think dentistry is high on the totem pole as far as N95 masks, I don't see that happening anytime in the foreseeable, in, in, in the near future at the very least, um, because I think there is such a shortage in the hospitals and the critical care areas, those are definitely going to have the first choice. One of the things that I understand, Sabine, and I think you mentioned this to us earlier uh, before we got came on the air, is 
there are uh, people buying uh, N95, quote-unquote N95 masks from China. And I don't know if they're FDA approved as N90 or NIOSH approved as N95 masks. Uh, but I have heard that people are somehow getting a hold of some of these from other sources. And I honestly don't know if those are, in fact, uh, NIOSH approved masks. And I see that you just put a very nice slide on here. Thank you very much which talks about exactly what we would want to see on an N95 mask that we would use. Good slide. So, there's a lot of dentists buying these. We've, there's a lot of groups looking to buy N95 just to have to protect, and it seems like they're all coming from overseas. Dr. Collins, can you tell us, are these regulated? How do we know if, in fact, what we're purchasing, whether it be to donate it to a hospital, to give it to the workers on the front line, or for their personal use, how do we know that these are actually you know, real and are going to do what they say they're supposed to do. Well, this is a good slide. as John said, this is a great slide. So the first thing is, uh, do you actually have an N95 as a NIOSH approved uh, respirator? And so you can look for the approval number and you can look for in big bold letters NIOSH on, and we can see it's on the right hand side of the exterior of the mask to so the left hand side as we're looking at it. Um, the other aspect, however, is that um, in, in a critical situation when there aren't any N95s remaining, um, it is currently acceptable um, as a last resort to use masks not evaluated or approved by NIOSH. Um, yes. I, right. I, will, I will add to that that if I found myself in a situation and there was an emergency and I didn't have appropriate PPE uh, for treating a patient in the current situation and I knew somebody down the road did, I would send the patient down the road. Okay. And, and, and that's something that the EPA has done only recently where they said this is an emergency situation as a last resort, as Fiona just mentioned. And that's good because uh, you like to think that you're using the right kind of protection. Uh, but if you don't have anything else available, as we typically say, a mask is better than no mask. And in this time of shortage, we're trying to do the best we can with what we have. Yeah, and if anybody's interested, the CDC uh, just brought out a checklist for optimizing use of N95s, and uh, this contains this information on uh, what's acceptable, what's not. So if you go to the CDC and put in checklist for optimizing N95 use, uh, you will find a three-page document that you can uh, peruse. And we can post that on the Dental Advisor social media sites too for those of you who are interested. All right, so just one last question before we kind of get out of the mask PPE uh, topics. Keep talking about the clinical teams, you know, my dental assistant, my dental hygienist, myself, everyone who's in the back. What about my front desk? I've got a wonderful woman who's our patient care coordinator, Casey. How do I protect her? What do we need to do for people up front who are actually seeing these people, you know, front and center, they're handing them pens to sign with if if they need to, and how do we protect so, them? I, I think part of conserving N95 respirators is making sure there are, are as few people needing them as possible. Um, so the easiest way to reduce the usage uh, would actually be, or, or face masks for that matter, the easiest way is if you're only treating one emergency patient, do you really need a front desk person? Uh, you can probably manage on your own, on your own and an assistant. That's a great point. Yeah. You want to minimize the exposure at all costs, and it is an emergency. And 
that's that's perfectly true. And we're going to move on to the next section. And, and I realize that there are tons of questions that aren't answered, but I'm going to just say this. Go ahead and put your questions in an email to connect at dentaladvisor.com, and we'll get those answered. But we do have to move on to the next section. There's over, I think, 2,000 participants that are joining us live right now. So it's really hard to get through all the questions. Um, but let's. the next thing that we are going to do is talk about another big area, and that has to do with aerosols. Everybody, it's, a bit, it's not even just a big buzzword. It's something that we have to be concerned about. You know, we're, we're learning new facts about this virus every day. And the one thing that we all do know that is true is that there's a cloud of aerosols containing, you know, bacteria and viruses, and they can remain in the air for hours. If I had to go back to work on Monday, how do I protect my hygienist? What does she need to do if she's using her Cavitron or polishing, or if I'm picking up the hand piecing, handpiece and I have to do aerosol creating procedures? Okay, Dr. so if we think about aerosol generating, um, the, the highest aerosol generating procedures are, of course, the Cavitron or um, rather ultrasonic scalers, um, as well as high-speed handpieces. So if we think about ultrasonic scalers, in the current situation, uh, scaling is not an emergency. It's, it's uh, elective in this situation. Uh, so there, wouldn't, there shouldn't be ultrasonic scaling occurring. Uh, if we look at the high-speed handpiece, uh, that may still obviously be required if you have an emergency end or an emergency extraction that, that needs sectioning. But this is even but if, that, if, even if it will, like I said, if we went back to work on Monday... Right. Well, if you, if you went back to work, we, we don't know what changes will happen to the guidelines, but under, under the current uh, situation, there are things that can help reduce aerosols, of course. Um, number one is rubber dam. That's not going to help with an ultrasonic scaler, of course, uh, but that's a great way of preventing aerosols. So that will help with uh, high-speed high handpiece use, uh, whether during emergency or not. Um, and in fact, I was speaking to a dentist yesterday and uh, he was saying he uses a rubber dam if he has to section uh, prior to an extraction as well. So that's a good option. What about uh, high-volume evacuations? Another, there's a product called Isolite that um, is also used to uh, reduce aerosols and helps isolate the oral cavity. Dry shield and relief all reduce, those two reduce the amount of moisture that could be present for an aerosol. And in fact, these are some areas that I know severe that the dental advisor is actually looking at future research on. Right. right. So we're talking to some of these companies now. And again, going back to it's just so new and the research takes time. And so just stay yeah. tuned and we'll have some good updated information on those products. But I feel better knowing that if we had to go back to work and the coronavirus is still around, that we could take some of these additional steps to protect our hygienists, per se. Some of the steps you can take, uh, of course, and, I, and I'm going to piggyback on what Fiona was talking about, is there, um, there, there are units that are available that are filtration units for the air, in, and they, they are uh, available for use in, in facilities such as dental practices. They've already been used in hospitals. I know a couple of dental schools have used these as well. These are not negative pressure rooms. Uh, it's, it, it's really going to be relatively impractical. Uh, for um, the overwhelming majority of, de of dental negative. practices is just have negative pressure rooms. Right. Uh, you look at something and uh, you look at something like the surgically clean air 
system, which uh, I know we we had uh, we were going to be looking at for dental advisor. Uh, there are some dental schools that have been evaluated uh, and and may even have it. I know the two in Michigan, University of Detroit Mercy, where I'm from, and University of Michigan. I know looked at it and, and oh, probably have it in the school. Um, these things uh, have multi-stage filtration processes. They actually have uh, initial stages that can filter out particles down to a tenth of a micron. And they've been evaluated for this for years. It's, it's a Canadian company. There are other companies that, that have similar technologies. But these things are available and have been shown to be effective. Are they expensive? You bet. But I already know that some uh, dentists that uh, have been planning for the future are looking to get these types of units. And so these are among the technologies that Fiona was mentioning, um, where you are gonna see down the road a, a, a more dramatic reduction in aerosols. Things like cavitrons, and not being a dentist, but from what I understand, things like cavitrons just expose the uh, clinician, the hygienist, for example, to uh, a lot of splash and spatter and aerosolized material. Uh, and so an, even an, an N95 mask is only going to be so effective for a certain period of time. So I think down the road, you're going to be looking at something that offices uh, will have available or have available already that they may use to um, further reinforce airborne protection. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because that was, we're reading another buzzword is, you know, negative pressure rooms. <laughs> yeah. Sure I've never you. really thought about that prior to this before. Sorry. Googling, you know, YouTubing, what can be done. I've got an office that's 16 months old. It's equipped perfectly for what I needed it for three weeks ago. The reality is I don't think many people can get a negative pressure room. You know, yeah. So if we if we think about the negative pressure room, I totally agree with you, Sabia. Um, it's very difficult to retrofit negative pressure. Um, the, the other aspect, however, is I think uh, some people think that negative pressure is going to protect the individual, both the patient and the clinician and assistant, if there's an assistant there as well, um, from the environment. In fact, it's the opposite. So the negative pressure actually forces air into the room. So it helps to reduce contamination of corridors and adjacent rooms. It's not preventing contamination of the room that is under negative pressure. Um, so that, that seems to be, um, at least on occasions, a misperception. The, the other thing that's come up really is uh, negative pressure exhaust fans. And, you know, the, the question has come up, uh, what is it or should we use an exhaust fan uh, during the patient's visit to clear aerosols. So uh, not surprisingly, given how I just described the negative pressure room, the negative pressure exhaust fans create a slight negative pressure in the room. So again, the uh, airflow is into the room, not out of the room. So it, it won't have that effect. Um, John, you, we had been discussing HEPA filters earlier. Do you maybe want to address those? Well, I think... HEPA filters, sir, HEPA filters would help. I don't know how much they help. Certainly, uh, units that are uh, designed for uh, the types of filtration that we're, we're talking about are, are going to be more efficient. But at this point, anything is going to be better than nothing to uh, clear out particular.
particulate materials. Uh, they have a certain range of effectiveness uh, as far as the distance from the units. They come in different sizes. Uh, yes, I think that they have a use. I don't know how much they're going to be effective as far as uh, total protection. I don't, I don't think we're, we're looking at that. But at this point, we're, we're looking at anything we can do to reduce the potential exposure. One thing I want to mention, uh, and Fiona, you mentioned earlier uh, in, in answer to Sabia's question, and that was the idea about the rubber dam. Right. You know, you know, rubber dams work. I mean, this. I mean, as I said, you know, you you all learned how to use these years ago. What's happened though is 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 I think people. Um, I'm, I'm going to use a bad word. I'm going to use the word complacent over the years. And while people learned how to use rubber dams, I don't know if everybody's been using the rubber dam routinely uh, when they're supposed to be used. Uh, people may have to be reinforced on some of this and actually get back to some of the basics, which we know work, which by themselves are not going to be a single answer, but in conjunction with some of the other technologies that Fiona and I have been mentioning are going to be much more efficient. And so it's not necessarily just new technology. It's reinforcing the stuff that we learned previously that maybe we haven't been using as much as we are now. Does that make sense, guys? No, it does. It, it makes it makes it's yeah. information is very much so clear. I think the biggest thing for everybody is, and the panic and the concern is, what do we do when we go back? Yeah. I, I think the other thing we need to remember, um, we're talking about aerosols and a, and a Obviously, everyone's concerned about aerosols as well. But based on current knowledge, it is largely droplet infection or droplet transmission um, right. that is the concern. So that um, it, it doesn't alleviate the concern to a great degree, but I, it's something I think we all need to remember that it is mainly droplet as far as we know. Okay. Yes. yes. And so how, what about, you know, the ADA came out with the recommendation to pre-rinse having the patient rinse with two parts mouthwash, one part hydrogen peroxide for 60 seconds. Is this effective? Is there any alternatives? Dr. Molinari, you might have some insight on that. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> if you want to jump in whenever possible, okay, here? Uh, <laughs> certainly mouth, mouth rinses work. At the very least, they're going to lower the general concentration of organisms in the oral cavity. That's, that's been well shown for, for years and years and years. Uh, one of the things that, that came out from uh, the, the Chinese study uh, not that long ago was that chlorhexidine may not be effective to kill COVID-19. Uh, and so we've seen recommendations now and people using, I get a lot of questions, on uh, hydrogen peroxide or povidine, um, povidone iodine. Uh, these are oxidative agents, uh, the hydrogen peroxide. Uh, are they going to be effective uh, against a range of organisms? Yes. Are they effective against COVID-19? Again, we don't have information on that. But if you ask the general question about the effectiveness of pre-procedural mouth rinses, pre-procedural mouth rinses are one of those things that we've used for a number of years that will reduce the microbial load. And so in conjunction with some of the other things that you can be doing, they would help. They would help. In and of themselves, they're not going to be a an an uh, an, an all conclusive solution. What and John, I remember seeing a review that you did on preemptive rinsing, uh, actually a good number of years ago. 
Um, so it, it was fine to reduce. And I believe most of the studies have been actually on bacterial load, but it yes. was fine to be re effective in reducing bacterial load. It didn't, um, there was no proof that it reduces infection, uh, but there's certainly evidence that it reduces bacterial loads. And right. um, really, if you think about it, it can't do any harm. Right, right. Unless somebody's allergic to something in the, in the uh, rinse, of course. That's true. Uh, we, we should probably mention, John, that it is an off-label of whatever rinse you're using, um, just to be absolutely correct. Okay. Great. So we, and again, the questions are coming in, and these are the same questions that I've kind of nailed with, I've sat down with Dr. Collins and Dr. Molinari about, give me, just tell me what can I do, what can I use, and you, they put me at ease by just saying, hey, look, you just have to give it a little bit of time. The recommendations aren't out there yet. You know, this pandemic is still going on. So we all have to be patient. There's no, no one can provide you real answers right now because the research just hasn't come out yet. It takes time. It's a new virus and we all just have to be patient. But if, if I... But there are... Oh, go ahead. No, but there just, are answers. There are answers. And... As I think I mentioned when we did the uh, webinar last last week, Sabia, or the beginning of this week, I even forget what it was. The idea is concern, but not fear. Right, that's true. You all have been doing so many things well, your standard precautions, which have worked for so long. There's going to be periodic updates, but it doesn't mean that what you've been doing is all to be thrown out. Uh, some of your listeners, and I... Just forgive me for a second to be an old teacher here, okay? Uh, some of your listeners remember the early days of HIV and AIDS, and I'm talking the early 80s and mid-80s, when people were going crazy. There were people who wanted to uh, sterilize the operatory after seeing certain patients, and all that fear and concern. What happened was what came out, science, clinical science, evidence-based science, were a series of well-described recommendations based on that information, which you used, universal precautions, then standard precautions. People did it. People got used to it. People felt more comfortable with it. This is going to go along. We have to get through this period, and we're going to get new information, which hopefully will be included in updated recommendations, as Fiona mentioned, but it doesn't mean that we throw out what we've done. What we have done has been so effective for so long. This is going to be an adjunct, and there's going to be some things that are going to be added. What it is, we're not sure. But you do and, the and John, best you I, possibly can. Sorry, John. Oh, no, I, haven't, I'm done. I haven't heard that there's going to be an update. We're just uh, guessing there might, or I'm just guessing there might be. I don't know if you're guessing or if you know something that I'm not aware of, but... Um, I think we could expect something in the future, but don't know. No, and I, I'm going to throw this out there. I know we didn't really discuss it, but who do we get our guidelines from? Well, <laughs> the CDC. <laughs> I did it. I did it to you. I remember when I'm doing this, I'm I'm putting my general dentist hat on. You know, as a clinician, there's the ADA, there's OSHA, there's yeah. you know, we've got our so, governments and our states we live in. I mean, who are we really waiting for? The CDC. What what? To me, it's the CDC. The ADA works with the CDC very closely. OSHA looks at CDC guidelines. In fact, the OSHA documents for each of the states, or the federal OSHA documents, were based on CDC recommendations. Now, states, some states have gone, have gone beyond uh, 
what is basic federal OSHA, but the ADA continues to work closely with the CDC, and that is the agency that has the epidemiologists, the infection control experts, the infectious disease experts. They have access to research and information from all over, where traditionally that is where we have gotten the information that we use as clinicians. And, and, and to hobby to hobby horse on that, there are a couple of um, other things as well. Um, obviously, NIOSH falls under the CDC, mm-hmm. um, but FDA is also a factor. And FDA actually also get um, relies on information from CDC and other organisations. So they sure. they all um, collaborate. Uh, another yes. one's the EPA, and of course, and I know we're going to discuss the EPA list shortly. But that's another uh, governmental organisation that's involved. Um, but the, the, the core guidelines from the dental setting have come from the CDC. Um, the other thing is the standards organization. So the ADA that John mentioned, the ADA, they have standards. Um, I mentioned Amy earlier. They have standards on sterilization and other procedures related to infection control. And then we were talking earlier about uh, negative pressure rooms and other aspects of design. So HVAC and ASHRAE are other standards organizations. So actually quite a lot um, that are giving guidance um, to the healthcare settings, including dental. We've just okay. got a little bit of thank you for that recap. We're going to move on just to disinfectants and barriers. There's a lot of mis. There's again a lot of panic, and I love what you just said: concerns, not fears. That's going to be the quote of this entire webinar. <laughs> there is. There's so much panic, right? There, am I what I'm what I'm using at my office right now? Is it working to kill this COVID nineteen? You know, what are we doing things correctly? Should we be using barriers? So, Dr. Molinar, we spoke again in depth about it a little bit last week. What could you tell us a little bit about how long this virus lasts on surfaces? How do we know what we're using is actually killing this COVID 19? And again, you're talking about the EPA. You know, how do we check to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do? Uh, Fiona, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the disinfectants and criteria if you don't mind in the beginning. <laughs> And then Absolutely. you can jump in and also then add into the barriers. Uh, and you can handle that part. And we can uh, both talk about the disinfectants, if it's okay with you. Sounds great. Okay. All right. As, as far as disinfectants, there's only been about a million questions with this. Um, there was a report, uh, a laboratory study, came out a few weeks ago, showing that uh, COVID-19 lasts uh, about three hours, up to three hours in aerosols and it can survive on surfaces for extended periods of time. I think cardboard was a few hours uh, on a stainless steel or other smooth surfaces uh, a couple of days. So, of course, the question comes up, how, how, how effective are our routine surface disinfectants against this virus? And the fact of the matter is, and I'll, and I'll explain it, very effective. You saw, all of you uh, listening to this, when you look at the 2003 CDC guidelines, uh, on page 64 of those guidelines, there is a table about uh, the effectiveness of surface disinfectants against various organisms. Uh, sterilants, for example, would be things like glutaraldehydes or high concentrations of hydrogen peroxide that can kill spores. That would be the quote-unquote cold sterilization that uh, dentistry used routinely up until uh, X years ago. That is obviously something that you don't need. You look further down on this list of organisms and levels of disinfection, 
and you'll notice lipid or medium-sized viruses. Coronaviruses are in that group. They are RNA viruses that have a lipid envelope. And in fact, that lipid envelope makes them very susceptible to the overwhelming majority of surface disinfectants that are out there. In fact, they are susceptible to low-level disinfectants, things that uh, kill uh, some of the bacteria, hospital species like staph, they kill herpes, simplex viruses, and coronaviruses are very susceptible. You and your practices, all of you listening, are pretty much using intermediate-level disinfectants that have tuberculocidal activity, a much higher level than low-level disinfectants. And they kill more resistant viruses than coronaviruses. So by using the disinfectants that you're using in your offices correctly, you would be inactivating coronaviruses. And that's important. The key for all of this, though, is no matter what surface disinfectant you're using, is to use it appropriately. The surfaces need to be cleaned. And then the contact time for disinfection needs to follow the manufacturer's instructions for use. Uh, we did some of this at Dental Advisor. I remember uh, other companies have done this, but manufacturers spend a lot of money making sure that their instructions for appropriate use of any of their products are appro have, have been tested and do work. And so when they put that on the label, they have had to run it by the EPA, in the case of disinfectants, to show that this product will do what it's supposed to do when they are on the surface for recommended periods of time. So if it says five minutes, if it says three minutes, if it says two minutes or one minute, that is the manufacturer's instructions for use for the contact time for that product. Just a quick wipe where it evaporates much too quickly is not the appropriate use of that product. So again, it's almost like getting back to basics and following instructions. But the disinfectants that you are using routinely in your practice typically work. The EPA has put out a list of these. You can look at the EPA registration number. There are different uh, product names for different uh, for specific numbers. And you can look to that if you have any questions. But your intermediate level disinfectants traditionally work. Companies have done tests on a variety of organisms, including, in, including the envelope viruses. And that is used as an indicator of efficacy. Uh, a lot of them haven't done COVID-19. Some of them are doing that now, but the fact is that they are effective uh, in viruses that are similar to the COVID-19. I hope that helps a little bit. So basically what we're using right now is killing is, generally what we're using is intermediate um, Level, level disinfectant, tuberculocidal yes. disinfectant. And they yes. can kill TB, and if they can kill TB, they can kill COVID-19. Yes. Okay, but good to know. On the label, they have tests that they've run for viruses like that. For example, you have some, some, some products actually have a very specific coronavirus test. You look at some of the, like the hydrogen peroxide, like Optum, and you look at some of the other surface disinfectants, and they have these, uh, maybe, maybe this side, for example. I'm not sure of that. But yep. these things have been tested, and they would have that on the label. And we actually have a nice video that we just put on our social media, the Dental Advisor, uh, I think Facebook and Instagram, that shows you how to look up a disinfectant on the EPA. So make sure you check that out if there's any concerns about what you're using. And 
If, if I can hobby horse on, there, there are actually um, several uh, cleaner disinfectants or disinfectants on the um, list that you will be familiar with and you'll have seen the names for it that are spe- specifically used in the dental setting. Um, and, and just to reinforce what John said, the, um, they're, they're actually um, not, the good news is they're not highly resistant organisms to disinfection and uh, really not a lot's changed and certainly not the method of cleaning and disinfection. And I think you nailed it, um, Dr. Molinar, just follow the instructions that they're providing you. And it will tell you about the contact time. It will tell you the protocol that you need to use. But one of the things that sometimes they don't tell you is how many wipes do you need to use a regular operatory? Sometimes I've been in offices where I've seen just one wipe being used. And I shake my head because I'm assuming that there should be more than one. (laughs) Tell me your thoughts. Sounds like back to basics again, doesn't it, Sabia? Yeah, just a little. I remember, and oh gosh, this is. I remember uh, at Dental Advisor, we actually did a study as to how long surface areas would remain wet with uh, different uh, wipes that we used. And we had different quadrants on tables that we wiped. You remember that? Yeah, we got to bring that back. And we found that some of the ones that evaporated very quickly uh, would obviously not not stay wet uh, very long. So you can't use one wipe for a whole operatory. And then again, this is where I think people need to realize that you have to do things the way you learn to do them and the way you had been doing them. So making sure that the surface stays wet for the recommended period of time according to the product's use is something that you're going to have to look at. And maybe we need to reinforce some of those behaviors that some people haven't been doing. In the schools, we drill that into the students. I mean, I have colleagues throughout the country uh, who are in charge of this in the school, and and, and the students are are, are, are are held to this. But when you get out in practice, it's it's obviously a different world, and, 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 and I understand that. But I think you still need to make sure that you use these things according to the way they've been tested and approved for use. And that includes barriers. And I know Fiona wanted to say something about barriers. Yes, and I, I did actually want to just add, if someone is unsure of how much of a surface they can clean with one wipe, the instructions for use will tell you um, for what area one wipe is used. Um, if you exceed that, what's going to happen is uh, the area will dry, likely the area will dry up before the con- required contact time to kill the microorganism. And uh, either none is reapplied or you have to reapply. So it, it, it really is important from the perspective of having enough of the chemical on the surface so that it is wet for the contact time. Um, and the IFU will tell you that. Um, right. And John, oh. is, I'm sure, John, you've had this question as well, where, well, my, my wipes are drying out if they're using wipes. Right. And right. really another aspect of that is, well, maybe it's the, the uh, surface area that you're covering um, or maybe the canister top, some of them click twice or some of them are a little harder than to, to shut than others. So just make sure that the canister is completely closed. Right. If I can just give one last thing before you get into barriers, uh, Fiona. Uh, one thing to, to remember here is, uh, come on, my, my brain just, just, just went blank, is to make sure that as you're using things appropriately, understand we haven't seen outbreaks of infections that I'm aware of from contaminated surfaces in dental offices. I'm not aware of it. 
So what you're looking at is not where you have a surgical operatory where you have splash and splatter, blood, pus, everything all over the place that can contaminate surfaces. You have organisms that can survive, but basically we haven't seen uh, recorded outbreaks of infections traced back to dental surfaces. Now, we are faced with a whole new organism here, and we're faced with challenges that we hadn't seen before, so that requires us again for the 14th time to make sure that we use these things the way that we're supposed to. But that information hopefully will be updated for us. Right, as the research comes in, and we talked about the disinfectants. Um, Dr. Collins, can you talk a little bit about barriers? We use, I know there's some people who use barriers to cover. Do you think there's going to be a recommendation to maybe cover our entire chair, our dental chair? You know, we're using headrest covers. Well, the, the, the recommendation um, hasn't really changed. So there are two options, obviously, for clinical contact services, and that would include headrests and uh, the part of the chair that you sit in, as well as armrests, for that matter. And you can either use uh, disposable, single-use, FDA-cleared barrier protection, because it is a medical device, and then discard it after a single use, or cleaning and disinfection. The caveat is when you remove the barrier, if there's any visible soil underneath, then you still have to clean and disinfect. Um, but it's an either or, unless the, there's soil under the barrier when you remove it. So yes, that's an option. But if we're planning on, we don't need to get the disposable chair seat covers as long as we're doing proper infection control wiping down. Correct. It's a, it's a choice. It does uh, reduce chemical use, um, but it is really a choice. Do you want to use barrier protection on that area um, or do you want to routinely clean and disinfect? So uh, that would be a choice for the individual clinician. Sabia okay. and, and Fiona. I'm going to wrap just, up with some. Yes. Uh, we're we're going to wrap it up a second, but just to show how conscientious so many of the people listening are, you know, individuals, when they take the light handle covers off, they automatically wipe the surface with a disinfectant, a disinfectant wipe or something like that. Now, the barrier has, on the light handle cover has been there to protect the surface, but they wipe it just because, just because. They're being conscientious. And I think people need to build on that. It, you could say it's overkill, but I prefer to call it being conscientious. Is it necessary? No but they're doing it because they want to make sure that things are clean and they're not contaminated with anything. That type of approach of being conscientious is something that's going to stand very well as we move into the future with all of these uh, uh, challenges and possible updates and recommendations. Yeah. And, and before we move into the future, um, the only other thing I'd like to add is the weakest link for us as a society is people who are not following what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I put in my personal plea, if you've been asked to stay at home and social distance, please do. Because if you're not, you're the weakest link and we won't move on very quickly from this. We'll move on much more slowly than otherwise. I don't mean you personally, but anybody you know. 